0: This is a conversation I've been waiting for, for a very long time. Drew Steigerwald is the editor-in-chief of 1440, a daily news newsletter with 3 million subscribers and an astonishing 60% open rate. The unique thing about this conversation is that Drew and I are both working on the exact same problem. We don't like the fact that people consume low-quality news, and we want to help people consume higher-quality information with a focus on more facts and less partisanship. We also have similar sized audiences. 1440 has 3 million subscribers and the other web has 5.6 million, but at the same time, we're going about the problem in a completely different way. 1440 uses the old school tools of meticulous editorial review and original writing, whereas the other web uses the high-tech approach of software scraping, AI models, and recommendation systems. I think you'll all enjoy hearing a completely different perspective on this, which, in my view, still achieves the same goal quite admirably. I encourage everyone to check out 1440's newsletter at join1440.com. They are certainly a force for good. And while I obviously prefer our own product, I am still subscribed to 1440 and love what they're doing. Hey, Drew, welcome to the show. Hey,
1: Alex, it going? thanks for having, having me on.
0: No problem. I'm a big fan of 1440, but for those of my viewers who don't know what it is, can you tell me a bit about it?
1: Sure. Um, so we're at 1440 Daily Digest. We're a daily news email with uh, more than 3 million readers at the moment. We're getting pretty close to 3.1. Um, we focus on two value props for our audience. Uh, the first is bringing together a comp- like a comprehensive view of what's going on in the world each day. So we try and go across uh, all the topics that you might find in the news, so sports, science and tech, politics, business. We bring it together in one place that's easily digestible for sort of a general audience. And then the second uh, is more stylistic in our approach. We put a premium on uh, conveying fact-forward, impact and outcome focused, uh, impartial as humanly possible news and information. So those are the two things that we think we do in sort of a world class way. Bring together unbiased uh, news and information and do it across all, all the topics. So basically if you know if you're a busy reader, you' let's say you're an accountant in Kansas City, you got three kids and you only have 10 minutes to catch up on the world, but you want to know what's going on. Uh, We think 1440 can be that that morning uh, news digest for you. We're in year six, actually, uh, which is pretty amazing to think about. So we started in 2017. Uh, Myself and my co-founder Tim, neither of us have neither of us have media or journalism experience. Actually, Tim was in finance, and my background is uh, science uh, and politics. So. I have a PhD in physics, and I left a lab to work on Capitol Hill for a little bit, bounced around in D.C. doing uh, science policy before starting 1440. But back in 2017, uh, Tim and I were basically complaining to each other about how difficult it was to just stay up to date on what's going on in the world. Um, It sounds like it wouldn't be a problem, but we had jobs where, you know, I'm already an expert in science, but my job required me to know what, to to be informed about what was going on in the business and finance world, even entertainment, just like have casual conversations with people during meetings. Um, And we would literally spend, I mean, no joke, we would spend 90 minutes each morning going through various websites, reading different newsletters. The issue is that everybody sort of does this. Mile deep, inch wide approach, and what we mm-hmm. were looking for was an inch deep, mile wide uh, approach, and we just we couldn't figure out why no one had uh, done this at that point. So we put pen to paper, um, created a you know created a sort of a draft uh, of the vision for the product that we felt met our needs. And then we did like a good little startup. We did a MVP process, iterated it with a small group of friends and family, um, and then spent the next uh, couple years scaling it up and turning it into a, a real business. Um, so that's where we're at right now. We focus, um, sorry, we're focused on building a sustainable independently owned news media business that can deliver for millions of readers each morning.
0: Sure. So it sounds like you and I are essentially trying to solve the exact same problem, maybe even for the same people, but in very different ways. We ended up with an app that scrapes 900 different sources and lets the user configure a feed from something like 30,000 items per day. You ended up with one newsletter that has a limited number of items in it. So can you explain to me what led to this decision? Why do you think this is the best way to solve the problem that you described?
1: Sure, yeah, so um so one thing i like i I kinda I'll apologize in advance because I tend to repeat this point. I'm just gonna keep beating this drum until people stop listening to me. Um but I think one of the upsides of not having any uh media or journalism experience is we came into this as quite literally as like news consumers, frustrated news consumers. We had our own problems with the way that news and information was delivered by like traditional media outlets and other places on the internet. So when we came in, we knew what the sort of the problem set that we needed to solve uh, for that type of news consumer, which, which was like us, like busy professionals that don't have a ton of time and need to stay up on things. And so the reason I say it like that is... When you you think about it through that lens, there's actually like a set of problems. I say problems, but like challenges that we saw that basically impeded um, delivering information to the consumer. So there's, you know, this is our perspective, but news. There's too much of it. (laughs) It's a lot of it isn't news Um, on any given day. You know, you know. Estimating a little bit here, but 90% of what you read in like the news or media space is not really news, but it's like perspective or analysis or somebody said something or something might happen or something like that. And, you know, our, our viewpoint is that it's not that that stuff isn't valuable or even interesting uh, to like a certain slice of, you know, news readers. But it's not, it's not actually news, right? Like nothing's actually happening. And so, you know, one of the big challenges was, uh, how do you skim off that, uh, you know, again, I don't want to use like, I don't want to cast it in a negative light, but kind of like remove that sort of fluff from what is, you know, what happened that actually um, has like a concrete outcome in the world and just like get kind of straight to the point there. So too much information, too much opinion. Uh, often writing is structured in a way that doesn't explain context upfront for the reader. You have to even within a single article, you have to kind of go dig for it and put the pieces together yourself. Um, and then again, I just will probably keep returning to this point. Um, but, you know, there's, I think it's a well-known issue. There's a lot of News outlets that like we like we have a ton of respect for them, but a lot of the content is framed through a certain like lens, if that makes sense. So you know, thinking through these different problems too much, a lot of it's not news, too much opinion, too much bias. It actually what we found is the less is more approach uh, really resonated with people again, especially for that. Uh, that type of news consumer that's like really like really does want to know what's going on but just doesn't have a ton of time
0: yeah, so first of all, I completely agree with you on your diagnosis of the problem. Uh, I still every time I read an article that talks about somebody being outraged that somebody else didn't comment on an event that happened before and I try to dig through the links in the article to get to the original event and I just can't find it anywhere. Right, That seems like it's no longer news at that point.
1: Have you ever been stuck in the doom loop? It's what what I call it, at least where it's, you know, you search and you search for, you know, let's say it's like the original event. Um, A lot of times it'll happen, like, let's, I'm just going to, I'm actually not making this up, I'll just cherry pick something from a couple months ago, but let's say like Elon Musk is on stage in an event and he says XYZ and then there's a ton of ink spilled about it and you're, you know, okay, you read the article, but to be, to be thorough, you want to just see what he said so you can hear it yourself and then come up with your own opinion on it. So you read through the article, takes five to 10 minutes to find the link. You think you found the link, you click on it, and you think it's going to take you to the, I don't know, a YouTube video of the remarks, and it just takes you to another article from the same outlet about Elon Musk again. It's, it's kind of infuriating. I don't want to get on my soapbox or anything. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, and especially if the original thing that somebody said is deemed inappropriate then nobody actually publishes the original remark because that would be inappropriate and so you just can't find it anywhere <laughs> agree it's frustrating right. so let me try to understand then how you solve this problem for your readers and how do you convince your readers that your take on the situation is actually the correct unbiased view that Basically, gives them everything they need to know for the day. How do you convince them that they can trust you? Sure.
1: Um, so, uh, great question. I feel sometimes when I answer this uh, question, it's one of my favorite uh, people. Ro- people roll their eyes or think I'm hedging or something, but it's the truth. You know, we actually don't. So, we don't put ourselves out there as an arbiter of truth. or the we're the one hundred percent correct authoritative. Outlet. We know what's right, and everybody else doesn't. It's not like that. Actually, our our tagline is unbiased as humanly possible. And the way that we approach things is like, again, going back to how the company was founded. Quite literally, we're frustrated news consumers, and we're humans, just like everybody else who's trying to understand what's going on in the world. So our approach there is like, you know, we we don't have the absolute answer, but our job is to spend time trying to figure it out and learn about it and convey that information to the reader so that they don't have to. You know, we're lucky to be in a position where we can spend eight hours a day, 10 hours a day, parsing through these different reports and, you know, analyses to, like, package something for other people. That said, you know, the, a lot of the words, I think, that get, like, Use so I've already said a bunch. Unbiased, impartial facts. Everybody says these things, right? And the the only way that you can convince someone that you're making a good, your best good faith effort to pull together that type of product is quite literally just to put it in front of them. So it's interesting. We've actually, um, you know sort of without going into the weeds of email strategy, we, we actually found that the best way when someone has signed up for 1440, the best way to get them to stick around as a reader is to skip all of the welcome emails, all that stuff, and just put the product in front of them and let them read it and make a decision. Um, it's not for everybody. We actually think in terms of, we call it like a psychographic instead of a demographic. So there's sort of, You know, if you think of the profile of news consumers as this like bell curve and like on the edges of the bell curve, you have people who are hyper news consumers and they tend to be there's strong correlation with being uh, fairly ideological. It's not always true, but those two things kind of go hand in hand a lot of times. We're probably not for them, which is fine. I think they would they would read you know, the the digest and say, you know, you're, you're not framing it in the correct way, whether it's like this side or that side. The issue is that most media, this is our observation, most media and their business models are built around catering to that sort of hyper news consumer. There's a lot of reasons for that. Um, it's probably a much longer conversation. Uh, but we focus on like basically the middle. Um, And I don't necessarily mean like the middle politically. It's more like, you know, if you listen to what our readers tell us, it's not that they don't have opinions. Uh, they, They certainly do. But what they've been looking for is an outlet that informs without telling them what to think, right? So like we put the utmost emphasis on helping people understand what's going on And just, you know, after that, they can go off and form their own opinions. Like, that's not our job. Our job is to give them the tools to go out and, like, understand. And then they can, you know, come to their own conclusions. Um, And so, you know, just to, like, tie tie a bell on that long answer there. The only way to prove it is to just do it and put it in front of them. And I think, you know, I hate to use, like, a cliche, but in some sense, the proof is in the pudding. We, you know, we do have like three million readers, but I think more, and more importantly, and to the question, the it's it's roughly a third like self-identified left-leaning, a third self-identified right-leaning, and like to the extent that you believe people when they say they're independent, a third like independent or centrist, um, and you can't build that type of audience profile unless day in and day out, you're, you're doing your best to, uh, to to like meet the mark on the impartiality side.
0: Right. So I saw some research from Reuters last year that showed that in the US, 42% of adults are consciously avoiding the news right now. I'm guessing a lot of those are your potential target audience because you're fixing the things that are the reasons they avoid the news.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to try and not, go off on a tangent um, because I, I don't do the surveys and I'm, it's not my area of expertise. When I do read the surveys uh, and they're very interesting, everybody should go read them. They're very informative. I question if you sometimes you like go into the methodology and you look at like what constitutes an active newsreader or a semi-active newsreader. That's not really, it's not exactly the words that they use, but it, it basically gets boxed as someone who checks like a major news outlet once a week is like considered considered a sometimes reader. If it's like one, if it's more than that, they fall into that like active avoiding box. Um, so the answer is like, the answer is yes. However, I think you, I think you would be surprised at the number of people that do actively like, like would fall in that active news consumer box. So let's say daily Daily reading of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, who still um, subscribe to 1440, uh, partly for efficiency. I'm just sort of going, like, I'm going to spit back some of the things readers tell us. Um, But, you know, especially now, a lot of the bigger outlets have begun to specialize less in sort of direct and efficient communication of news like, this this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. And I mean, you can just—it's not like an—it's not even an experiment. You can just open up the New York Times and look on their digital front page, and you'll see like human interest piece, human interest piece, perspective piece, analysis, and so a lot of a lot of our audience does read—they do read these various outlets, but then they they rely on 1440 to sort of fill in like that, that extra coverage. So there's there's a lot of utility, I think, for the vast majority of news readers. Um, We think the total market is like in the tens of millions and uh, I think primarily the folks that are turned off by it are the ones that tend to be like more ideological in nature.
0: So I want to get back to the question of impartiality and use myself as an example here to demonstrate what I think is the risk and that maybe on the left-right axis in American politics, I could be impartial. And if you magically turned me into the editor of the New York Times tomorrow, I think I would do a much better job than their actual editor at being right there in the middle and covering both sides fairly. But I grew up in Israel. So the moment you pick a topic like Israel-Palestine today, now I don't trust myself anymore. I have to outsource it to somebody who doesn't have my history, just because as much as I will try to be impartial, I am never quite sure. So our approach at the other web has been, let's let AI models do it and let's open up the source and then people can judge whether they're going to be impartial or not. But if you have humans do it, how do you avoid these kind of biases on the smaller, more specific issues where a person's personal history might affect them?
1: Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree more. I'd say it's one of the biggest challenges, right? Like you, one of the most difficult things is being self-aware about your own, your own biases especially the ones you're not aware of right i'm going to answer like in a roundabout way um so you can uh you can keep pushing if it doesn't i don't um satisfy the the question here um but so you know what's interesting i wouldn't have thought this when we started but uh over time um it sort of became this like fundamental approach to how we do things so we even so we, our branding and our positioning and our style and the product is framed as this unbiased as humanly possible. What I find interesting is we don't get out of bed in the morning saying today I need to get go, I'm going to go make the least biased uh, email news product that we can. What we focus on is like ex- explaining. Uh, what's going on? And I know that sounds um, obvious and maybe like tables, table stakes, so to speak. Uh, but can, explaining and contextualizing things. So if you read a, if you read a story, so I'm just going to speak for myself. Pick up the paper. I read whatever's on the front, the front page. As I'm reading, I'm having questions like naturally occur to me. So just to make up an example, let's say it's about, it's not about Israel Palestine, but it's about um, immigration policy in the US. And it's from earlier this year, right? say Title 42N. So it's a poli- it's an immigration policy uh, for like border flows and um, so on and so forth. So I'm reading it and it says, you know, Title 42N. So my first natural question is, well, how many people did it affect? How many people were coming across the border were subject to that uh, that authority of them? Like, what percentage of total like border encounters was Title Forty Two responsible for? It sounds like I'm getting way off track, but my point is that these questions naturally occur to me. And of the frustrations that I listed at the beginning, in the way that like traditional news outlets convey information to me, like I don't know what it means to say like title 42 is ending if i don't know how many people it affects and of that like how many like what percentage of total people come across the border so you go on you're trying to answer these questions right mm-hmm. it's almost like a mini research project and i use this kind of convoluted example but it's the same for almost every story including you know the majority of the of what's going on in gaza when you focus on trying to answer the, those contextual questions and you only have 150 to 200 words to write that focus on answering those questions because if you have those questions other people have those questions you actually naturally end up with something that is perceived by the readers as un, unbiased or impartial that was very that was very wordy
0: mm-hmm.
1: but to sort of sum it up, um, I agree. I agree with you. Like the, sol- like understanding your own biases is probably like the most important thing, sort of the most difficult thing. However, when your mission is to to like explain, and help people learn, help contextualize, it's actually surprising like how little, not not little, but it it is almost like a secondary uh, challenge to like make sure you you know what you've put out there is as unbiased as possible. The last thing I'll say is, like, in the six years that we've been doing this, uh, what's going on in Israel right now is probably one of the the most difficult and challenging things to write about. Um, So it's it's somewhat, like, unique in that regard. So take that for what it's worth.
0: Yeah, it's unique in the sense that it doesn't quite correlate to the left right axis would typically have in our politics right that might be the complication that you actually don't have these axes they are orthogonal in some sense
1: yeah yeah no certainly i agree with that i think that's also reflected in the um the reader feedback that we get uh each time we we write about it so
0: all right so leaving those contentious topics aside for a second why did you choose email as opposed to websites, as opposed to apps, as opposed to maybe even print journalism or video, which many other alternative media sources do today?
1: Sure. Um, yeah, that's a great question. So uh there's a couple there's a couple threads there. So one is, one is actually just um the there's a lot less friction in starting something with uh that's like email first. It's you know, you have the tools are, are already out there. So if you rewind to 2017, excuse me, Tim and I, you know, had this problem as news consumers. We knew we had the problem. The question was, does it? Does anybody else have this problem and frustration with us? So to test that, you know, you're able to take basically off-the-shelf tools when we started when we use MailChimp and create a product and go out and test it and see if people... Um, uh, if it like resonates with people and like adds value, solves problems in their day to day, but I think like more broadly, it's it's not it's less news related. You know, it goes back to push versus pull. So like if you're an email first company, you have to do a lot more work on the front end to build the audience. But, but once you have built the audience, they trust you. It sounds a little bit weird to say, but when you're in someone's inbox, it's actually like, there's almost like a tacit agreement that like, you know, they've like let you in, they're not deleting you, they're reading you. So there's this like little trust ecosystem going on there. From a business perspective, it's much more monetizable than the poll version, which is like websites, which I think you see a lot of like, I mean, this whole, the the last 18 months has seen a ton of uh, media organizations either do riffs or just go go bankrupt. And a lot of it is when you have a website, you have to obviously, you have to rely on people coming to your website versus you showing up in their inbox. And so the flip side, like on the email side, it's easier to, sorry, you got to do a lot more work to build your audience. On the website, you don't got to do a ton of work to build your audience. Anybody can just like come. I mean, you got to want to raise some awareness, but then they don't, you know, they don't stick around, and they got to remember to come back and come back and come back. And it's, you know, we did this at kind of an interesting time. Substack started, I think, in twenty seventeen mm-hmm. we started as well. Um, and I think when we started, people were like, emails—that's pretty old school. That's boring. And then, like, it went through this like trajectory where Substack became a hit. Then everybody had newsletters. Then we hit peak newsletter, started to get back down. Now you see, even like companies, so like Semaphore, for example, has taken like what I would call a hybrid approach. I think even they describe themselves as like email forward or email first, but they do have a website. So they have a website, but like the ability to engage your audience and really have like consistent daily engagement, which again, like one, a great connection with your audience too it's much easier to monetize and build a sustainable business model around um they've adopted that and axios has done the same thing so i think i think people will finally come around to like the 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 value proposition of using email and like again for the third time coming in as like a news a news consumer and not someone from media media background Mm -hmm. To me, it's it's email, podcast, website, smoke signals, whatever. Like th- what you're trying to do is convey useful information to people that and they find va- like a value add in the product that you're giving them. And you know, to me, email is is like the medium, and there's a lot of advantages to it. But you know, again, whether it's a, a website or whatever. It's about delivering that to the news
0: consumer. Right. But it seems like most media organizations try to go in an all-of-the-above approach. They try to have a newsletter and a website and apps and basically every other medium possible. You chose email, which sounds like it makes user acquisition more difficult, but it makes user retention possibly easier because they have to actively opt out as opposed to just remembering to come the next day. How do you solve the user acquisition problem then? It seems like that is the make it or break it problem if email is your medium.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Getting customers—that's the that's the make or break make problem. Um, it's so. This is a really fascinating question. It's probably worth like a whole other conversation. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna give like a like an in the weeds answer. So frankly, it depends on uh, where you're at in the stage of your company and what you want to be. So by that, I mean, the second part, I mean, um, let's say you're like a a quote unquote loan operator. So Matt Iglesias, for example, you're not trying to build uh, a big media empire. I don't know he might be, I shouldn't speak for him, but you know, really the value there is in his writing. The only thing he's trying to do is like get his stuff out to his audience. So in that case, you don't need to go build a big like business infrastructure, you just have to rely on like the substack tools to build your audience. If you want to be, so the flip side of that, so our business model, we have two, two ad placements per day and it's the digest is hundred percent free. So you can sign up at any time. So we, like our financial model is based on, building the audience and charging advertisers for engagement that they find in in the email. So when you're small and you can't attract advertisers, uh, you have to be creative. So you you like partner with other newsletters, you do swaps, you say, uh, I'll feature you and ours if you feature us, and you slowly build your your audience. And so you get to the point where you can rely on paid acquisition. So paid acquisition means like, Advertising on Instagram, advertising on TikTok, actually, like if I only if we only had to choose one um, one way to acquire new customers it would actually be through other newsletters. Uh, in terms of like lifetime value and retention, those readers always tend to be just exceptional. The problem is it doesn't scale as well as obviously places like Instagram, Facebook, the social media platforms, stuff like that. So. Again, to summarize, (laughs) as you get bigger and you grow your audience until you can attract advertisers, and once you have revenue, you you lean really heavily into paid
0: acquisition. Right, makes sense. Right, so you mentioned there are tens of millions of potential customers that you want to reach eventually. I think so, yeah. What is the long-term plan then? Will you reach them in the next four or five years? If so, then how is it just paid advertising that gets you there? Or is there some place where those guys congregate? And are you going to offer them anything beyond the newsletter that you have now? Do you have plans to build other products?
1: Yeah. To answer the first question, paid acquisition is like pretty powerful. Um, we've been, we've had a lot of success with it. I've heard some stories from other outlets uh, experiencing some challenges. We've, we've still been doing pretty well. So I think like that it, it's combined with organic sort of word of mouth. Once you get to a certain size, you begin to reap the benefits of people, you know, mentioning to their friends that they read 1440 or the more people hear about it, eventually people just, you know, look you up and sign up. So there's, there's a, a significant percentage of organic traffic that we also, uh, we also get. So yeah, I, you know, I, I wish I could wow you with a, a strategy to go out and get, um, you know, the next uh, 3 million and the next 3 million after that. But today, I think we we feel like we still have, like, a fairly clear roadmap uh, pursuing the same strategy on the Daily Digest side. Um, and I'm, I'm knocking on wood pretty heavily because <laughs> you never know what will happen. Um, in some sense, you're, like, reliant. You're, you're subject to the whims of changes on the platforms that you advertise on. So we'll see how the, especially, like, privacy things can affect just like the cost to acquire a new, a new reader. So we'll see how that develops in the next couple of years. So that's kind of the boring answer to the first one. We, we feel like we still have a lot of runway. The answer to the second one, so I'm going to, if if it, if you would allow me, I'm going to just like riff and use my imagination a little bit here. So I think one of the things that, you know, we've, we've been lucky we've been successful. I think a lot of it's predicated on, on the um, fact that, We started the company to solve a problem that we knew existed, right? Just to again repeat myself. Um, We had this problem. We weren't going out searching for a problem. It wasn't, oh, everybody's complaining about news. Let's go see if we're the ones who can fix it. We just knew there was a problem. And one of the things that our audience has taught us over the last six years is. There's millions of people who read the news, number one, to stay informed, of course, like you want to know what's going on. But number two, it's it's like the, the, the manifestation of like a deeper curiosity. So, you know, I think there's a, a ton of people who, you know, they read a news article about CRISPR. So I think it was late Friday or our Saturday edition. Uh, covered the FDA approval for um, CRISPR treatment to treat sickle cell. And it's beneficial for someone, again, like the vast majority of people aren't CRISPR experts. So they read the news item, they remember it. But there's a deeper level of like fascination, curiosity, the urge to like know more. Like what, how does CRISPR work? What is it, Gene? Can you really just go in and snip something out and like reconnect it? How does that all work? And if you aren't an expert in that area, you don't know where to go look. It sounds like a trivial problem, but you actually don't know where to go to just learn more. Not not as an expert, but like oh, again, you're an accountant in Kansas City with three kids and you're super busy, but you're like fascinated by CRISPR. Or black holes, or you've always read about how, like, the Federal Reserve, but no one ever ever really explained it to you. Um, one thing, like, I've realized is there's this huge demand for like that that learning, and that's that's not really news. News is about what's happening today, but you know we have this kind of like thing we say internally, which is like news is the entree to knowledge, which sounds a little corny, but I think it's pretty true, um, and. You take that, and then there's. I think there's this larger problem. Just to get like way big here, uh, in the same way that the like traditional news outlets um, weren't conveying, at least in our opinion, like weren't conveying news and information efficiently to news consumers. The internet actually, in my in my view, doesn't do a great job at delivering like knowledge, which sounds like nonsense, right? Anybody can go to Google and punch in CRISPR. The problem is you punch in CRISPR and you get 9 billion results, which is like a technically amazing feat, but not very useful for the average person. And on top of that, it's been, you know, there's, I'm not the first person to say this, but the SEO games have like made it more difficult to find something that's digestible for an accountant in Kansas City that doesn't have much of time, but wants to understand stuff. And that person wouldn't know to go, for example, to Harvard's Weiss Institute, where they have a really excellent two minute animation on CRISPR that's really easily understandable for your average person. And, you know, I've just, cons- once I realize once we realize that there's this, like, demand, like, our audience, like, really loves it when we include these, like, back, with like, we go out, we do the hard work, we surface these resources, we stick them in there, and people just, they just engage with it like crazy. So there's huge demand for that. But you don't know where to go look. So there's like this, there's this mismatch problem where you have a bunch of people that like want to learn about fascinating stuff. And then you have like the internet's like the marketplace and it's not like really delivering, (laughs) delivering it for them, right? So I said a lot of words without answering your question in a specific way, but that's what we've been thinking about, right? So there's like news and then there's like knowledge and it's out there, but there's just a disconnect between the people that want it and the organizations that are providing it.
0: Interesting. So, if I try to organize everything like an engineer into boxes, right? The news is the subset of information that happened recently and is worth reporting on, right? You're talking about now that somebody is reading the news, let's take them into the even smaller subset of information that has been validated in some way and is therefore knowledge. Is that a reasonable way to look at it?
1: Yes, I, I think you captured it. Although I would say I don't think it's. I actually think it's a, It's not a. I don't think it's a smaller subset. So mm-hmm. the way I would think about it is, there's so I just to use like the israeli – um, sorry, Israeli-Gaza conflict right now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There's a there's a lot of really high quality resources out there that existed before the current war that are just sort of out like out across the internet. There's maps. There's interactive looks at the history. Um, and it's just like scattered. And and maybe like maybe this example is not the best because in this case, those resources actually may be a little bit easier to find, but the point sort of remains. And so like you know, every time you read a news item about Palestine, Israel, Gaza, it sits on top of this broader base of knowledge and right. it's that broader base that people don't get in, we think don't get in their day-to-day experience. Right. Um, I mean, it's, it's almost just a, a practical problem. If you don't like, you don't do this as your job, you don't have 30 minutes to go poke around the internet to find the best you know, history of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, to, to stay in that current example. So, you know, I think, I actually think it's, like, bigger than, right? It's like, it's, like, explaining, to take one of my favorite examples, like, black holes, how do black holes form? What do black holes do to, like, space-time, nerdy stuff, right? But people love it. The the news on like every other day basis is like Black Hole discovered. James Webb spots this. That's like news, but it sits on top of this like really fascinating broader base of knowledge that's just like disaggregated across the internet, in our opinion
0: yeah, so another engineering model I can propose here is you're talking about making it all two-dimensional. So if you're talking about something something CRISPR, then I can ask you, CRISPR, what's that? You tell me it's a way to edit genes. I say genes, What's that? Yeah. <laughs> and we can just dive all the way down.
1: Exactly. And it's just to keep actually just to keep pushing on that example, um, because my wife is a biologist and I'm not, I'm not. I took my last biology class when I was a sophomore in college. Um, you can have that you can have that conversation. But, you, but what's more powerful is actually a simple two minute animation made by an expert that's buried that's buried on like the Harvard Weiss Institute, as I mentioned earlier. And the problem is like like we you and I can sit here and talk about what's a gene, how does it work, or we can just go watch this really great short video and just visualize it and, and come to a better understanding of how it works. It's again, it's the the problem is like someone made that and it's just like sitting out there. And you don't, it's, it's, it's this like disaggregation
0: problem. So I think perhaps the most complicated part of that is finding the animation that explains it at the right level, because I've seen people who can explain physics at the level of a physics PhD. I've seen people who can explain physics to a five-year-old child. And I've seen very few people who can explain it at some level in the middle. That's like the right way for somebody who took a couple of physics courses in college and hasn't looked at it since it's really difficult to find an explanation of, I don't know, Dirac's equation at the level that I would understand and interest me. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what what we think sort of fundamentally it's a curation problem, Mm -hmm. right? So the, the internet aggregates, but it would be more preferable if it curated.
0: So let's dive into that a little bit, especially now that it looks like generative AI is going to generate a lot more stuff on the internet. So the size of the pile is going to grow much faster than it has grown until now. Curation will become that much more difficult, especially for humans. How do you plan to address that?
1: Yeah. Uh, so I, I would answer. I'd actually like push push back. Hopefully, and say uh, curation may become more difficult. Maybe remains to be seen. I also would argue that it will become more valuable. Um, there's a lot of details in there that we'll we'll see how they develop you know if you're if you're curating content how do you know what's been generated or not or how do you go out and verify things i think those are questions all tbd i do personally this is just pure you know looking at my thumb and feeling which way the wind's blowing i do feel like there will be sort of a zeitgeist at least for a little bit against uh sort of AI generated stuff. You already see it with some of these um, places like CNET. There was one today. Uh, actually I think it was is Israeli really based a uh, uh, financial website that was busted for using AI to copy competitors content. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, there will be a proliferation of mediocre content in the short term, would be my guess. Yeah, no, it'll become more difficult, but I think like that just that increases the value of uh, having a trusted outlet where you you know you can rely on people to curate um, stuff that's sort of human produced. I heard I'm going to steal this. I can't remember where I heard this, but it was recently, and I think we can assume that AI won't always be like this. But we're in this phase where it feels like the stuff getting the stuff that's being made. Um, in the way that you see sort of online is like having a bad junior assistant. So like, uh, you know, you can't really trust it.
0: Yeah. Well, it's certainly the case for now because when you train an AI model on the entire internet, there is essentially no way of telling it in advance without going through the content yourself, which content is valuable, which content is not, right? So the only thing that determines what it considers true is frequency. If it encountered a certain claim more than its inverse, then this claim must be true, which I saw a really fun example, probably the best one I've seen so far of an April's Fool's joke that was posted by the Lithuanian government that basically turned into knowledge as far as GPT is concerned because nobody posted the opposite of this April's Fool's joke, so it was one to zero, therefore it must be true
1: right right um, yeah, no, I mean it's it's I, I it's not my area of expertise. I think you're you're much more qualified to talk about it than I am. It does feel like right now we're in this phase of um, interesting, but can't necessarily trust the output. And, you know, I, I, I do think a lot of, at least speaking to, to our audience, uh, you can already sense, there's already a sense of like wariness, like not wariness, but wariness of, you know, what, What was generated by a computer? To what degree can I trust it? Um, So, yeah, it's currently we find that sort of curation challenge back to the question of how do you go about, you know, selecting unbiased or impartial content? Most of the work is in making decisions on what not to include, if that makes sense. And I think that will just continue and become more paramount as you have more like proliferation of the, the AI content. You got to do a lot of legwork in, in deciding like, don't include this, don't include this, don't include this. All
0: right. Last question. I understand the what and I understand the how, but why? What is the greater meaning or the purpose of what you're trying to achieve?
1: One, wonderful question. You know, I've thought about this a lot there's not really there's not a way to say this that doesn't sound at least so much easy, but I do believe it uh i i I really strongly believe that most people can have intelligent rational conversations with each other, even if they disagree what they what they need or what they look for is a common set of like facts or contextual information we felt like that wasn't being being provided in an efficient way uh, apologies to all of our friends at larger media outlets that they listen to this. um yeah no that, that's why like I, I just i really you know coming from science you spend all day every day questioning like your own work trying to prove it to yourself trying to poke holes in it and when you do that And when you do that, you develop a a much deeper understanding of what you're working on. When you translate that to news or news media or information, going out and understanding the contextual stuff first before you make up your, you know, your conclusion or your opinion means it gives you the confidence that your opinion is like sitting on solid ground. And if you feel like that, you can have a rational conversation with someone else who knows the same things but came to a different conclusion. Uh, so again, I know it's like sounds cheesy because like I'm definitely not the first person to say that, but I honestly do believe that like we just you know th- there's millions of people out there that are like that, and they're not necessarily the people whose voices are heard <laughs> when uh, traditional like news media is is like building their business and deciding what content and how to write. If that makes sense.
0: So you're trying to create the substrate on which people can have a conversation. What traditional media tries to do is tell you what to think, so you exactly say what they told you to, right?
1: That's a yes. That's that's a flattering way of putting it. Thank you. I also want to say again, like it's not that we think everybody else is doing it wrong necessarily. It's more that when we were looking six years ago, an alternative option wasn't there, and so you know people can't choose to people can't choose something else if the alternative doesn't exist
0: well that makes total sense and uh i really support your mission i love the product and i wish you the best of luck thank you so much for coming here
1: yeah thank you alex it was wonderful appreciate it
0: this has been another episode of the other web join us next time for more discussions about news media ai and everything in between